0: Now this morning I want to tell you the story of three men. They all claim to love and serve God. They're all sincerely seeking salvation. They all had an encounter with God, but somehow they ended up with three completely different Gospels. How is it possible to meet the one unchanging God but end up with three different Gospels? Does God require different things from different people? Or are there many roads that lead to heaven? Or is it just that the gospel is so confusing that people can't figure it out? Why is the gospel hard for people to understand? The answer is because many seek a gospel that will save them from what they want in the manner that they want. Imagine a town called Earth, situated by a pleasant river called Sin. Its waters have lately been rising and are about to break its banks and sweep the whole town into destruction. Now the thinking people of the town are looking to escape to safety. Now in the town there is a train station called Church. From where an old gospel train departs for a place called salvation. Now many arrive at the station to discover that this train is not very comfortable and its destination is a remote place in the mountains much much further than they are prepared to go. Now while they hesitate boarding the train to salvation they discover to their joy that that there are other more modern, comfortable trains departing to more popular and closer destinations called Presumption and Best Effort. These trains are full of townsfolk, while the old gospel train is nearly empty. They all want salvation, but one that suits themselves. The salvation offered by the gospel of Jesus Christ is not what they have in mind. And they arrive at their destination just in time to see these also engulfed by the same flood they hoped to escape. Now Jesus said in Matthew 7.14 that finding the way of life is difficult and there be few that find it. There are many ways that look like they lead to life, but only one is true and it is unappealing to most. Ellen G. White once described the scene... In early writings, page 88, she saw a train of cars and it seemed that the whole world was on board and that there could be no one left. Then she says that she was shown the conductor who appeared to be a stately fair person whom all the passengers looked up to and reverenced. It is Satan. He is the conductor. The Apostle Paul warned against the many false gospel trains that depart from church. He said in 2 Corinthians 11:4, For he that cometh preacheth another Jesus, whom we have not preached. Or if ye receive another spirit, which ye have not received, or another gospel. I marvel that ye are so soon removed from him that called you into the grace of Christ, into another gospel, which is not another, but there be some that trouble you that would pervert the gospel of Christ. And today there are many gospels in the church that promise to get sinners to heaven, whatever heaven may be to them. The prosperity gospel promises to save from disease, misfortune and poverty while getting you to heaven. The comfort gospel promises to save from tribulation and suffering. The felt needs gospel promises to save from being denied the desires of the flesh. Is the gospel like flavoured ice cream? Do I get to pick vanilla or chocolate or strawberry or whatever flavour I want? Does it matter what flavour it is as long as I'm saved from the consequences of my sin? Do I get to choose what the gospel saves me from? Many want to be saved from getting sick but not from intemperance. Others want to be saved from poverty, but not from being lazy. Or saved from violence, but not from getting angry. Or saved from being unappreciated, but not from being proud. Or saved from sin, but not from selfishness. The Gospel of Jesus Christ does not promise to save us from what we want. It either saves us from what Christ wants, or it doesn't save us from anything at all. Now a deviant gospel is like a compass needle that does not quite point true north. In a long journey, all those that follow such a compass inevitably will be lost. It has led many to their death. It is no different with the gospel. Even if it deviates by a small amount, at the end of our life journey, we will discover that we are miles and miles away from God's appointed mark and are irretrievably lost for all eternity. Just now, rush hour is about to begin at the station. People are wanting to catch a train to salvation. What will they find at their local church station? Will they find an avenue of escape from earth? Or will they be turned away at the door? If they are granted entrance, which train will they catch? What gospels will be urged upon them? What will be their end? Let's consider the stories of these three men because they represent the cases of all who seek to be saved. Now, the first of these three men was considered by many to be a servant of the Most High God, but his way was not perfect before the Lord. Now, one day he had gone too far, and the angel of the Lord met him in his way. This divine encounter opened his eyes, drawing back the curtain between the seen and the unseen. He was surprised and terrified as he realised that he had incurred upon himself the wrath of God and that God was about to strike him down in judgement. He was convicted of his sin and desired to be saved from God's wrath. Fearing for his life, he acknowledged his guilt and determined to abandon his way. How many today have had this experience? Has the curtain between the seen and the unseen been drawn back before your eyes? Have you trembled before God's holiness and righteousness? Have you encountered that God who will by no means clear the guilty and that reveals his wrath from heaven against all who hold the truth in unrighteousness? Have you seen the enormity of your own guilt and unrighteousness? Have you feared that the wrath of God is about to fall on you? Have you determined to do whatever is required to be saved? Perhaps your encounter with God was not as abrupt as this man's. It may be a gradual realisation of your hopeless condition before God, your desperate need for salvation, and a determination to be saved. But unless you have had this experience, if you think that you are somehow safe from God's wrath, and it is only others that need to be saved, it is because you have not yet encountered God. Now many would say that this man had a conversion experience. Some would say that that was the moment that he was saved or at the least that he had passed from death unto life. I guess this man was converted after the modern order of things. He saw his need for salvation. He humbled himself. He acknowledged his guilt. He desired to be saved from the wages of sin. He expressed a desire to amend his way. He prayed the sinner's prayer, Numbers 23.10, Let me die the death of the righteous, and let my last end be like his. Having done all this, and having obtained God's mercy, he now presumed himself to have been saved, at least for the time being, and was now standing in God's favour. Yet, there was no change to his purpose, no abhorrence of his evil way. It is true that the memory of his encounter with God for a time checked his words and actions, but he found another way to obtain what he desired. Balaam only wanted to be saved from the consequences of his sin, death, hell, disease, infamy, and no more. You see, Balaam's problem was covetousness, a form of selfishness. His every motive was selfish. His desire to be saved from the consequences of his ways was only so that he could continue to indulge his selfishness. How many today go to church and believe in God for the very same reason? Out of selfishness. Self-preservation is a natural instinct both in man and beast. No enlightened mind, no special grace, no divine urging, no moving of the Holy Spirit is needed to want to be saved from death and hell. It is natural to the carnal, unregenerate mind. The Holy Spirit has no role in the desire to avoid the consequences of sin. Selfishness is sufficient. Any gospel, His primary objective is self-preservation does not originate in heaven, but on earth. It is not of the spirit, but of the flesh. Now, Blaise Pascal was a French Catholic theologian and mathematician. And he formulated what is known as Pascal's wager. And what this is, is it's a gambler's approach to the gospel. And what he did is that he argued that a rational person should live as though God existed and seek to believe in God because if God actually doesn't exist such a person will only have a finite loss i.e. miss out on some pleasures miss out on a little bit of luxury etc whereas if God does exist he stands to receive an infinite gain i.e. eternity in heaven and to avoid an infinite loss eternity in hell Now, only ardent atheists who irrationally prefer to believe in anything, any fairy tale, other than the Bible, no matter how fantastical, will argue that Pascal's wager is not rational. It is, however, a compelling argument, an insurance policy for the carnal nature of many. The motivation of those who would take up this wager is purely selfish they are motivated by the same spirit that declared in Isaiah 14, 13-14, I will ascend into heaven, I will sit upon the Mount of Congregation in the sides of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Now my question is, is heaven a reward for the selfish? Is selfishness the basis of salvation? Is it the means for the operation of the gospel? Is it the foundation for the perfection of glory, the sublime love and joy and peace that is to be the inheritance of the saints? God forbid. Selfishness is but the trap door into hell. Now, many like Balaam want salvation to be some kind of instant get out of hell car that permits you to carry on as before. A gospel that only claims to save you from the consequences of sin and nothing more appeals to sinners everywhere. They are happy to embrace this gospel of self-preservation. Having acknowledged God's justice and their guilt and having confessed their sins, they presume themselves to have been converted and saved. There may be a superficial change in their lives, but they are not saved from their lust, their sins, their love of the world and the things that are in the world they continue on with their selfish purpose as did Balaam. They stand in the church saying as did the Jews in Jeremiah 7.10 we are delivered or saved to do all these abominations. They like to dwell on Christ's death and claim that just accepting his death on their behalf and nothing more will save them from the wages of sin. They willingly ignore that scripture plainly teaches that Christ's death on its own does not save us from anything. It only makes salvation possible for us. It opens the door to our salvation. We can accept Christ's death on our behalf all we like and crucify him afresh many times over. But that will not obtain salvation for us. Paul describes these people. They claim to be saved by the blood of Christ while being lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, Truth breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, eye minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. Their hope for salvation is based on a past, fleeting encounter with God. They passively look back at that moment when they confessed their sins and were not destroyed as the moment they were saved. Their conversion is at most superficial. Their repentance is shallow and their salvation imaginary. Thereafter they live not by faith but by presumption. They are not sorry about their sins but only fear of reaping their consequences. They may have been spared for the moment but they are not in any way saved from the weight of the sin. Millions today have the faith of Balaam and promote his perverted gospel, dragging many into their eternal ruin, as when Israel joined themselves to Baal Pe'or and were destroyed. The Apostle Peter says of them in Second Peter 2 14 15, this is a paraphrase they cannot cease from sin, deceiving unstable souls, having a heart full of covetousness or selfishness. Cursed children who have forsaken the right way and are gone astray following the way of Balaam the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. These are wells without water, clouds that are driven about by tempest for whom the fog of eternal darkness is reserved. They speak grandiose, empty words to allure through the desires of the flesh and licentiousness those who are, actually are escaping from the deceived. While they promise them liberty, they are themselves are servant of corruption. Those who claim that God only saves them from in this life from the consequences of sin do not know God, nor the gospel of Jesus Christ. The carnal mind cannot understand the true gospel, for it is foolishness. As Paul says in First Corinthians two fourteen, the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. The gospel of Jesus Christ is contrary to our natural inclinations. It is contrary to our desire for self-preservation. It is contrary to our selfishness. It is not desired by those who want to continue to have their way. If salvation does not change our ways and transforms our life, it is no salvation at all. Those who have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ are saved from much, much more than just the wages of sin. They have been touched by the love of God. They are no longer only concerned with avoiding the consequences of their sins, but they are concerned with eliminating the pain and suffering that their sin brings upon those around them, and more so the suffering that it brings to the Son of God, whom they crucify afresh with every sin. Instead of boasting that they say, because everything was finished at the cross, the lives of those who embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ are changed. They no longer seek to please themselves, but seek to please God. As Romans 12.2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, there was another man who also had an encounter with God. Unlike Balaam, this man did not just want to be saved from hell. He wanted to be saved from sin. He believed that God not only was able to, but wanted to save him from committing sin, as well as saving him from his past sin. If nothing is impossible with God, why would he choose only to save us from the consequences of sin, but not from sin itself? A God that cannot or will not stop the murderer from murdering, the adulterer from adultery, the thief from stealing, the blasphemer from blaspheming, is no better than a pagan idol. A gospel that does not save us from our sins is not the gospel of Jesus, but is out of a false Christ, one that is either impotent or indulgent. As Matthew one twenty one says, that thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people in their sin from their sins there is no excuse for sin Christ is able to keep us from falling into sin by making a way of escape Jude 1.24 now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before the Father And 1 Corinthians 10.13 God is faithful will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able but will with a temptation make a way escape that you may be able to bear it Now, the Bible teaches that sin is not a condition that we're in. It's not a spiritual disease. Instead, it is something we choose to do based on our knowledge of right and wrong. It is a selfish act of the will. Sin is the transgression of the law. And therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. James 4.17 Now, unlike Balaam, this man did not want to enjoy sin while avoiding its consequences. He did not want to be saved in his sin, but he wanted to be saved from his sin. He understood that God's forgiveness is by no means a license to continue sinning. God's forgiveness is always accompanied by a command to go and sin no more. And The second man understood that being saved from some sins but not others is of no value. He had spent his entire life wanting to be saved from all sin, Salvation is all or nothing. You can't be half saved from drowning. For whosoever shall keep the whole law, yet offend in one point he is guilty of all. James 2:10. His hope for salvation did not consist of just passively looking back at some moment in the past when he was presumably saved, but was based on overcoming sin himself with God's help. He fully believed and claimed God's clear promises in Isaiah 26.12 and Ezekiel 36.27 that we read this morning that God would save his people from their sins and cause his people to walk in his statutes. His assurance of salvation was based on his internal acceptance of the truths of God's word and the list of sins that he had already been saved from. Thus his faith was accordingly reactive. He only needed God's grace occasionally, confessing and seeking forgiveness each time he knowingly committed sin. This tended to make him think that the holier he was, the less amount of time that he needed to spend on his knees. The more sins he overcame, the less time he needed Christ to save him from his sins. Now this man, you may have guessed, was a Pharisee. And must have been troubled by Jesus when he said in the sermon on the mount, "For I say unto you that unless your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter the kingdom of heaven." He wondered what more could God possibly require for him to be saved other than having faith in God, overcoming sin, and keeping God's commandments. We read about this man's subsequent encounter with Jesus in Mark ten seventeen to 22 where it says, And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running, and kneeling to him, and asked him, Good Master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, Do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honour thy father and thy mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Jesus explained to him that being saved from committing acts of sin was not sufficient. God required much more from him. He required him to give up all that he had and all that he was. Then Jesus beholding him loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven. And come, take up thy cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved. For he had great possessions. You see, the rich young ruler was content to be saved from committing acts of sin, but was unwilling to be saved from his selfishness. Many like him are happy to give up some objectionable sins, but in practice are never saved from all sin. Murder, adultery, theft, blasphemy must be overcome, while selfishness, pride, covetousness, self-righteousness and lust remain. They may have overcome many sins and may be able to recite all the sins they did not not commit. But deep down, they know that they are unholy. I find a law then, said Paul, the Pharisee of Pharisees, that when I would do good, evil is present within me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my memories. The problem with sin is not sin itself. The problem with sin is its underlying cause. You see, sin is but the evidence of an encroaching eternal death. The symptom of a deadly spiritual disease. The gospel of many Gives them comfort by claiming that if they can suppress the symptoms of this disease, that they will avoid its inevitable outcome. They hope to be saved from their external words and external actions, rather than from their evil internal impulses and feelings. Like an aspirin pill, their gospel may alleviate the intensity and duration of some symptoms, but it will do little to arrest the progress of the disease. While the underlying disease is not cured, symptoms will persist. Sin will continually re-emerge. These have no choice but to excuse a little sin as something that cannot be avoided. Their life becomes a round of sinning and confessing, like the Jews that sacrificed day after day. Since they can never fully overcome sin, In the end, their only hope is the same as that of Balaam, of somehow being saved in their sin. For these people destined to eternal death, church becomes a hospice. This was the problem with Israel. Like the rich young ruler, they did not want to sin. They sincerely desired and intended to keep every word of God's law, as we read this morning. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Nevertheless, they completely failed to do so, because at its very core, their heart was not right. Psalm 78, 36. Nevertheless, they did flood him with their mouths, and lied unto him with their tongues, for their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. Today, many who sincerely desire to be safe from sin are unable to do so for the very same reason. At its core, their heart is not right. They want to be saved from their external works while their hearts remain unchanged. They cling to a gospel that is limited to saving them from what they do rather than from whom they are. They desire salvation from sin, but not from themselves. They want a thorn bush to produce figs. They want a brackish well to give fresh water. They are like a cherished but torn garment. They want to patch up the holes, the sins that keep as much of self intact as possible. Jesus said, No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else a new piece that filled it up taketh away from the old, and the rent is made worse." They cannot overcome sin because by wanting to preserve self, they have limited God's ability to save them. Isaiah 59 1, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. But Psalm 7840 says that they limited the Holy One of Israel. God does not propose to save anyone from what they do without first saving them from who they are. The Israelites were slaves. God wanted to save them from their bondage so they could more perfectly obey Him, but they instead wanted to serve God while remaining slaves in Egypt. Likewise, we are slaves to the old man of self, and God wants to set us free from self so we can overcome sin. Yet we want to overcome sin as long as we can do so without being freed from the bondage of self the old man called self is quite prepared to believe in God, to confess his sins, to receive baptism, to attend church, to reform his lifestyle and even overcome some sin, just as long as he can continue to reign in the soul. His conversion is fake. He wants you to believe that you can trust him to navigate you into heaven or at least right up to his gate. But you will never enter in nor even get close to the gates of heaven unless you part ways with him now. The old man only knows the way to hell. He cannot take you anywhere else. At the end of the journey, when they finally step out of his car, millions will discover that they have stepped right out into the lake of fire. All the presumably good works performed, or sins avoided by the old man called self, Are worthless. Even with God's power at hand, the old man can never overcome sin because salvation is not a joint effort of Christ in partnership with self. It is all of Christ or none of his. Man is to cooperate with God by removing self out of the way so that God can work. God does not propose to make a thorn bush bear figs, nor polluted fountain bear clean water. A gospel that only claims to save the old man from sin has no power to save from anything. Jesus declares woes upon those who believe that they're overcoming a few obvious sins is an evidence of salvation. He said, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, and then the outside of them may be clean also. Ye are like whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but within are full of dead man's bones. See the real gospel does not attempt to patch up the old garment of our self-righteousness. It does not leave the old garment in place. It is a completely new garment. Hebrews 7.25 Wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I pray God your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you who will also do it? Who will do it? Is it I? Is it self? Now Balaam had his encounter with God and he desired to save himself in sin but was not saved. The rich young ruler had an encounter with God and he desired to save himself from sin but he was not saved. There was another man who did obtain salvation. His name was Saul of Tarsus. One day God also met him in his way and he fell trembling to the ground when he saw the high and lofty One that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy, who is the judge of the whole of the earth, who sees not as man seeth, but seeth the hidden things of the heart, the Lord who is righteous in all his ways and in all his works." Now people like to think of Paul's conversion as something that took place miraculously one day on the road to Damascus. But that is not when Paul was converted. That was only when he realised that something was wrong. And there's a big difference between realising that something is wrong and being converted. In fact Paul's encounter with God that day was ostensibly no different than Balaam's encounter with God. Both were miraculously arrested in their way. Both realised their way was wrong. Both continued on in their journey. Both were told what to do when they got to where they were going. But neither were converted that day. Like the rich young ruler, Paul, of course, was a strict Pharisee. He kept the law to the letter. He also wanted to be saved from sin and was confident that he was almost there. His unexpected encounter with God opened his eyes to his spiritual blindness. And now he saw what he had never seen before, that no matter how much sin he had overcome, no matter how perfectly he had kept the law, his way was not acceptable to God. He saw his guilt the depravity of his own heart, his covetousness, the justice of God, and longed for salvation, and cried out, What shall I do, Lord? But it took Paul three days of searching his own soul and seeking God without food or water to discover what God required of him. Paul then saw his need to be saved not just from the consequences of sin, nor to be saved from sin itself, but to be saved from himself, from his own inclinations, from his own tendencies, from his pride, from his selfishness. He realised that he was his own worst enemy, that his deceitful heart was Satan's greatest ally, and that his natural instincts with Satan's greatest accomplice to keep him in bondage to sin. As read before, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin. You see, conversion is not the moment when you first believe in God. It's not the realisation that you are headed to hell. It's not the desire to be saved. Because all the devils do that. It is not the day you are baptised or join a church. Conversion is that point in your life that you come to abhor yourself and in brokenness and desperation call unto God to save you from yourself, to die to self, to give you a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit. Our carnal nature is by definition selfish. All our thoughts and feelings are unavoidably directed to preserving gratifying and promoting self from these selfish thoughts and feelings stem all of our words and actions selfishness is inescapably bound to ourselves this is why self can never enter heaven because self can never escape sin because self is the very fountain of sin self must be rooted out if we are to escape sin the Bible says this very clearly. Jeremiah 17.9 The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And Mark 7.21-22 For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And James tells us in James 1.14-15 But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And then when lust has conceived it bringeth forth sin and when sin is finished it bringeth forth death. This selfish nature that we are born with is the foothold of Satan. It is placed in us when Adam fell. It is the greatest work of the devil. While this foothold remains in us, we are Satan's plaything. It is simply not possible for self to obey God. No man can serve two masters. We either serve self or God. Even with divine power at our disposal, the double-minded Who attempt to obey God's law while preserving self cannot overcome sin. We must first be saved from self before we can be saved from sin and we must be saved from sin before we can be saved from hell. In desperation Paul cried, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And beholding Christ declared, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord you see Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil to demolish the devil's foothold in us to overthrow the old man of self. 1 John 3 8 the son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil Jesus destroyed not just Satan's foothold in himself and said, The prince of this world cometh and has nothing in me. But Christ proposes to destroy it in each and every one that comes to him, because only those in whom the devil has no foothold can overcome the wicked one. And only overcomers will not be hurt by the second death. Only the selfless will enter heaven. Paul understood what Christ told the rich young ruler that salvation is only possible for those who take up their cross and follow him to their deaths because only he that is dead is free from sin, Romans 6-7 knowing this that our old man is crucified with him that the body of sin might be destroyed and henceforth we should not serve sin each day as a willing living sacrifice thou to die with Christ not the death of the body the death of self, a continual dying to self as Paul says, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ that the selfless life of Jesus might be made manifest in our body only as self is put to death can a new creature arise within us, only then can we be saved from sin 2 Corinthians 5.15 that they which live should not henceforth live to themselves, but unto him which died for them. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Paul's hope for salvation was not based on his encounter with God, nor on his belief in God, nor on what sins he had overcome, but on replacing his selfish, proud, self-righteous nature with Christ's selfless holy, divine nature only therein is there hope of escaping the evil within ourselves and inheriting eternal life only as our human nature in this life is replaced with Christ's divine nature is there any hope of escaping our lusts and inheriting eternal life as we're told in 2 Peter 1.4 no one can overcome self on their own any more than anyone can overcome sin. No one can be saved from his or her, herself unless they first long to do so. Only those who plead with God to save them from themselves will be saved. No one will long to be saved from themselves unless their eyes are first open and they see the evil of their carnal natures and loathe themselves. It is only when you despise your own selfishness your immorality, your pride, your lust, your covetousness and self-confidence that you'll repudiate your self-righteousness and condemn yourself, only then will you be willing to die to be free from self. Only then will you be willing to take up your cross and plead with God to be born again, to grant you his promise of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. ...and to make you to walk in his statutes and keep his judgments. Only then will you be able to enter the kingdom of God. For except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Those who have been born again are not the same person they were before. It is not their old selves trying to obey God and overcome sin. They have been saved from themselves, from their selfish nature... Having been saved from their selfish desires, in which sin is conceived, they can be saved from sin. And having been saved from sin, they're saved from its consequences. Second Corinthians ten, three to five, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. You see, conversion is not a one-time event because the new birth neither takes away our carnal nature nor redeems our carnal nature it only dispossesses the carnal nature. And Paul makes this very clear. The birth of Isaac, the promised one, only dispossessed Ishmael who was the firstborn, the natural born. Ishmael continued living. He didn't redeem Ishmael. Ishmael suddenly didn't become righteous. He dispossessed Ishmael. Ishmael continued living after the lusts of his flesh. So before the new birth, man has one nature. After the new birth, man has two natures, the carnal and the divine. This then is the basis for a lifelong struggle in those who are born again. A struggle between the old man and the new, between self and Christ. This is why conversion must be a daily event. Otherwise, he that is natural born or gain the upper hand. Conversion is not about giving up certain sins and evil habits. It does not seek to reform the old man. It's not about permitting the old man to police himself in keeping God's law. It does not rely on the old man to keep the course to heaven steady and then call up Christ to rescue our perishing souls whenever we hit an iceberg of sin true conversion does not put Christ in partnership with self conversion is about evicting the old man or old woman from the soul and that must happen every day moment by moment the converted trust no one other than Christ to steer the ship of the soul to its heavenly port least of all the old man Conversion is inseparably coupled to repentance. It's not being sorry every now and then because I did something wrong and then set aside repentance for another occasion when I may need it again. Repentance is about turning away from self to Christ. It is a continual yearning for a new heart, a new mind and a new spirit. It is the realisation of our own hopelessness, of the need for Christ within. It is about detesting our carnal natures and longing for God to save us from our own thoughts as well as from our own words and actions. It's longing for new impulses, for right feelings. Everyone who is truly converted will be filled with sorrow whenever self is manifested to the world instead of Christ. They repent not just over their individual sins, but they repent over the depravity of their own hearts and continually plead with Christ that self might die and that he might be revealed through them. This is why Paul's hope for salvation was on being converted each day, on taking up his cross and being crucified together with Christ I'm continually dying to self that Christ might continually be resurrected in his heart. Now, for some people who are in complete darkness, these three Gospels are like three steps to God. Now, at first they come to God out of fear of the consequences of their sin. Like a little child. They'll obey because they don't like getting in trouble. But as their understanding and love for God grows, they determine not to continue any longer crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh. Then, after many years of disappointment, realising that while self remains, they cannot escape the sin which so easily besets them. In deep repentance, They seek to be saved from the dead weight of self that continually drags them down into sin. You see, the path of life leads ever away from self, leading further and further away with each step. Most will not finish the race. They will fall by the way, but those who persevere unto the end, until self is completely evicted from the soul, be the cost whatever it may will be saved. Now every person who has ever existed will at some point have an encounter with God. There are some who have not once in their entire lives had an encounter with God. Many of these have been born in church. They think that they already have a relationship with God and that repentance and conversion is required only for those people in the world to bring them into church communion but a day is coming when they will find themselves standing alongside atheists and agnostics who have actively avoided having an encounter with God standing before his throne they will then realise that God's fearful holiness and glory and they will tremble before his power and justice their eyes will be open and they And where they saw their own integrity and goodness, they will see their guilt and the corruption of their souls. They will realise that they needed to be saved from themselves while probation lingered. But now they prefer to perish in the lake of fire rather than give up self. There are others who at some point in their lives did have an encounter with God. They saw God's justice and holy requirements They desperately sought to be saved, and God in his mercy spared them for some time to see what was in their heart. In the last day God will hold them accountable for what they have done with his grace. He will not ask them if they believed on him, or what good works they performed in his name. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth, for man looketh on the outward appearance. The Lord looketh on the heart, First 1 Samuel 16.7 to see if they retain their natural selfish heart or if they have been transformed by God's grace and obtained a new heart and obtained a divine nature. Now some like Balaam will have only wanted to be saved from the consequences of their sin and to use God's mercy to continue indulging in their selfishness into eternity. They may have modified their lifestyle somewhat to convince themselves and others that they have been converted at the last day god will separate the sheep from the goats some may say to him lord lord we have prophesied in thy name they have used the lord's name in vain to lure others into their ditch all these will not be spared in the day of vengeance They have selfishly abused God's mercy and will be consumed by the wrath of an offended God. Others, like the rich young ruler, have made efforts to overcome sin and do those things that please God to save self at last, whatever the cost. At last they see that all the sacrifices they have made, all the good things that they have done have been in vain. They have obeyed the word of God, but overlooked the spirit of the Lord. The one thing that God required, they have not done. They have not been born again. They have not relinquished self. They have not daily taken up their cross. They have not exercised that repentance that repudiates self and purifies the soul. They have cleansed and polished the outside of the cup, while the inside has remained filthy. They are bound to their carnal nature with unbreakable cords. In that day they will say, Lord, Lord, in thy name we have done many wonderful works. Then God will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The fire from heaven they had hoped to escape by their many efforts will consume them together with their selfishness. Finally, there are those who have loved God more than they love themselves. They were willing to decrease that he might increase. They have been happy to be misunderstood, misrepresented, maligned and persecuted. Through continual repentance they were willing to die all day long that Christ might live continually through them. They longed after the by nature. They did not seek heaven for themselves but sought righteousness for righteousness' sake. They desired salvation not for self, but from self. They did not seek God for their own benefit, but that God's name might be glorified. At last, they find that they have obtained salvation. They are saved from the lusts, the selfishness and pride of their own hearts. The fount from which flowed the bitter waters is dried up and from a new one flows the water of life. The wild bush that bore the thorns of selfishness has been dug out and replaced with a fruitful tree. Thus they have been saved from sin because it cannot be conceived in a selfless heart. Having overcome sin they are free from its consequences for Christ has paid the penalty for their past sins. There they stand before God as is redeemed on the sea of glass, not in self-assurance, not in self-satisfaction, nor in self-righteousness, but self-condemned, knowing that they are unworthy, that self has had no part in their redemption, that Christ, having shown the way of salvation, the giving up of self, the way of the cross, knowing the cost, they have paid it in full, and overcome as he overcame, and will sit with him on his throne. Which is your gospel?